Welcome to the Do Business Better podcast, the place for ideas you can implement to achieve prosperity. You'll get insights from successful business people on how they do business better. You'll glean tactics on creating a life and business by choice because we interview real business people who've done just that. Now here's your host, Damian Mason. Hello and welcome to the Do Business Better podcast. I'm your host, Damian Mason. But then again, you already knew that because that's why you tuned in. We get together here twice per week and interview great guests with awesome ideas, insights, inspiration, and information. And today is absolutely going to knock your socks off. David Avern, he's a friend of mine. He's in the speaking business like me. He writes books, good books. His most recent book is called Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. David Avern, welcome to the Do Business Better podcast. Hey, great to be here, my friend. Let's talk. Okay, here's the thing. We can talk about your book, but before we do that, we can talk about everything you know about business. By the way, dear listener, this guy flies all over the world like I do. I don't quite get to Dubai as much as David does. I get to places like Kearney, Nebraska a great deal more than he does, but I don't get Put to that Dubai. on the concert t-shirt, right? Huh? Kearney, Nebraska. Put that on the concert t-shirt. Yeah, Dubai, right. Kearney, Nebraska, Grand Island, Kearney. Scott's Bluff. There you go. Nebraska. Uh, anyway, you're, you're, uh, you're a guy that writes books. You're a guy that gets on stage and talks to business crowds. How long has this been going? on 20 years you know I've been, I've been speaking for about 20 years but but like you i don't think we we define ourselves as a speaker i mean it's, it's the content it's the um, it's the message it's it's hammering businesses to do business better i think i think you and i both do that within different capacities but for for 20 years before that i owned a, a marketing pr agency I, I worked with a lot of organizations in my in my youth i was pr director at children's hospital in denver colorado but but i've spent i think the thread that goes through all of it is is teaching businesses and business leaders to do business better. I spent about uh, four years as a Vistage chair, so I led CEO roundtable groups as well, and then spoke to probably 350 or so Vistage groups in addition to the other speaking. But once again, the thread through that is, is, is hammering them to do it better. You, neither you or I are what we would call motivational speakers, great props to the colleagues of ours who, who are sort of within that realm. They've climbed mountains, they've survived cancer, they've won gold medals. Um, I, I'm not the one that, that gets standing ovations because I make their brains hurt and I challenge them on their, on their mindset and their belief systems and their behaviors. And in recent years, very much towards uh, customer experience. And as it differentiates from customer service, how do people experience do business with you and why are we continually pissing people off? Well, I want to get into that, but I also want to cover a couple of things. First off, for those that are listening, what's a Vistage group? Vistage is the world's largest CEO member organization. Think of YPO, Renaissance Forum, some of the Christian organizations, C12 and, and Convene and others as well. But the idea is that, that a group of 12 to 15 CEOs from non-competing businesses get together once a month and they go into a room, they close the door, they take off the mask and they hash out their biggest challenges. And you led so, that. And then and, and I led those groups doing that, doing that. Then you're in there saying, okay, what did we discover? What did we learn? What's the takeaway? I mean, that's exactly. And it's a different skill set because much of what I'm doing is sort of the teaching model and the consulting work that I do with organizations. But within the Vistage world, it's much more facilitation. It's, it's creating the space for hard conversations to happen. And, and these men and women are, they have no peers, right? They, they've got employees, they've got sh maybe shareholders and stakeholders and vendors and partners, but it's lonely at the top. So this is an opportunity within a safe environment to have really hard pointed conversations. They talk uh, they, they talk cash flow and they talk growth and disruption. And they also talk cancer and divorce and the things that they can't reveal to others. So it was a, it was a great 
proving ground for me as well later in my career of, of working with the top leaders and asking those really challenging questions. And I've taken a lot of that content and been able to infuse it into my consulting and speaking today. It seems that maybe the Vista Group thing also taught you about the separation of uh, business and personal. Uh, you know, everybody talks about this work-life balance, to which I would right. say, you know, this, this is no kind, of, kind of overdone. First off, yeah. we're all humans, and we got to keep emotion out of our business, but we also can't keep emotion out of us because this is what we are and what we, what we do. I think more about, about work-life integration, you know, and the reality is, especially today with, with the communication mechanisms that we have, how often are our staff, our people taken off task? It's texts from home. It's calls from, from kids and, and my, my kid requesting money. I have for my, my middle daughter who's, who's at college, her ringtone on my phone is a cash register sound. So when she texts me, <laughs> it goes cha-ching. <clears throat> she was home at Christmas. She's like, what was that? I said, that was you texting me. She goes, a cash register, really? And I said, well, yeah, you generally just want money. She goes, okay, that's actually pretty funny. But, but, in, but, but that integration happens today. And so the reality is how do we as business leaders, as business coaches and facilitators help people stay on task, as you say in your book, do business better? Uh, you talk about motivation also, and you know, I've been in this for 25 years, obviously started out in political comedy. All my listeners probably know that. And then I got into what I do now, which is talking to business groups and I do it in a humorous way, but sure. sometimes people describe me cause they don't know quite what to do. And they say, listen, Dave Mason, he's, he's a speaker. Uh, and, and, and they say, well, like a motivational speaker. And I say, no, nah, I'll tell you what, I'm not a motivational speaker because right. first off, I'm not sure I believe in all that. That's sort of church tent preacher revivalism, if you will. And also I make the crack that in 2000, when things were washing out, you and I have been in this racket for a long while, making this yep. our business. And we look at ourselves as we help conferences accomplish their goal. You know, you got 300 people at the, at the college, you know, whatever, at the conference center, and we're going to make it good. And I said, you know, during the washout, a bunch of people that I know that are motivational speakers quit. So what's that say? Yep. Motivational speakers quit. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the fortune teller with the sign that says out of business. And it's like, shouldn't they have seen that coming? Right. <laughs> you know, you were really good at what you, so you and I treat this like a business and we have Absolutely. for a long time, you know, from the time that you were a trainer and I was a comedian and all that, and we had this idea and we have other things we do, you know, farms, investments. You also do some training stuff and you do some things on the side with your, uh, your office assistant, but you run a business. I mean, at the end of the day, you run a business. Absolutely. And I always talk about this with business people. And I say there's four success traits, risk tolerance, drive, resilience, and vision. Which one of those describes you? Say it again slower. You live with this day, Damien, every day. Say those slower. Risk tolerance, okay. drive, resilience, and vision. Which of those four traits do you possess in great amounts? You know what, this boy, what a cop out this is going to sound like. Um, it has to be all. Uh, because any of those things, a lack of those, a deficiency in those will derail you. If you don't have resilience, you can't handle the ups and downs. If you don't have, um, I can't remember all of them that you had. But, but as, you, as you rattle those off, for me, Every one of those things, because any one of those can be the Achilles heel for somebody in business, no matter what you do. And I think you and I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs, whether it's people in, in, in the ag world, whether it's small business owners and others, they tend to be the person at the top and whether it's the top of a small organization or a big one as well. This is a challenge. There's a reason why most people don't have the fortitude to go into business. And it's a lot of it is that, that risk tolerance, that risk tolerance as well is, and it was a challenge because I'm recently remarried. I'm, I'm really blessed. I have an, an amazing, wonderful, beautiful wife, but she is so not used to this, not getting a regular paycheck thing. Now, now of course we can do 
incredibly well, but it's because we're working 40 hours, 60 hours a week that the e-myth, Michael Gerber, that myth, of course, is the myth of the entrepreneur, the myth of the person standing on the cliffside with that breeze blowing their trench coat and their perfectly coiffed hair. Are you kidding? The reality is you never work harder. You're never your own boss. Every client is a boss. And so as I look at, at building a business and my speaking business is a business to be clear, it is, it's smart, it's diligence, it's daily for those people who even we were talking a little earlier in our profession, bless their hearts. Of course, that's when we say that for those who want to impact lives and speak their truth and uh, are you kidding? I want to feed my family. <laughs> and to do that, I better be damn good at what I do. I better be incredibly up to date on my content. And I better have a business structure that gives me a level of, of consistency, of predictability, that sales pipeline and funnel. Gone are the days when people would say, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. Today, you got a warehouse full of mousetraps, somebody overseas knocking them off for 10 cents on the dollar. And uh, it's not about being a good used to be. I, here, here's the thing I want to tell you real quick. Cause I was, I was, I had a conversation the other day with the CEO and he got in front of his organization and he had said what I hear so often, which is listen, folks, at the end of the day, it is about quality. It's still about quality. And I told him, I said, honestly, I couldn't disagree more. I think at the, be- at the beginning of the day, it's about quality. Quality is the entry fee. You better be good at what you do or don't even think about competing because your competitors are good. At the end of the day, it's about competitive advantage. What do you do better? What do you do faster or smarter or more intuitively? And that drives a lot of my content today in customer experience. How easy are you to do business with? Not the quality. Everybody assumes quality. You better be good. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really about finding and cultivating those competitive advantages. You've done two things, by the way, David Amron, that I appreciate. You've referenced Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth, which is one of the books I read a long time ago, and it helped me really understand because, and and to our listeners, you don't need to read it. We'll just go ahead and give you the quick and the dirty, but one of the new ones called The E-Myth Revisited, which is just an update of that one. But yeah, give give them a talk about that. The idea that I'm great at making pies. I make the best pies. I bake the best pies that the the country has ever seen. By God, I'm going to be a pie baker. And that doesn't mean that person's an entrepreneur. It doesn't mean that person knows how to build a business doesn't mean they know a thing about cash flow, revenue, in expenses, out promotion, which is you and I both know is very exceedingly absolutely uh, customer service, et cetera, et cetera. So they're great pie bakers. So there's that myth. And there's also the myth that you're the entrepreneur, like you said, standing on the side of the cliff and you, your hair's blowing in the wind and by God, you've conquered the earth and you do things on your terms. And the reality is I do do things on my terms. I do believe in life and business by choice, but you know what? When I'm running through the Detroit airport to catch that 1020 flight, which is the last flight's going to get me to the place so I can do that gig the next morning, and I've got 18 minutes because my flight was late and there's a blizzard going on, and I'm sprinting in my dress clothes, that's not necessarily life by choice. That's not entrepreneurialism as some people envision it. It's right. called the stress of getting the work done because you want to do what the client has paid you to do. Right. And, and the ramifications of underperformance are, are profound on our families. We, we can, you and I are very lucky, others of our colleagues as well, who can design the life that we want. But make no mistake, it's not a glamorous life. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've spoken to 24 countries around the world recently in, in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And I just got back from Bogota, Colombia. I love, I'm, I, my mom passed away at 69, never owned a passport. I am incredibly fortunate. But I will tell you, 
getting going there and coming back sucks. <laughs> just, it's horrible. I'm six foot four. It's horrible. And but well, you're flying first class. No, I'm not. I mean, sometimes right, the right. reality is to do what we do. It's the cost of doing what we do for those who are listening. The hours that you, that you put the, the research and development, the risk that you take, the money that you out, that's the cost of that potential uh, castle on the hill. And so for me, I have a wonderful opportunity to work with clients around the world, but, but I also have to fly 32 hours to Johannesburg to do the work. I am 23 hours to Singapore to be able to do this presentation or this consulting work and make no mistake. And I was gonna say, I, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but I do complain. But when I get there, I'm, I'm the happiest guy in the world because I'm, I'm in alignment. I'm doing exactly what I should be doing but there's a cost to pay. And the other cost is every day of success is a day away from my family. Yeah. You know, my brother, uh, who's no longer with us was a farmer and he, a long time ago, some of the farm types, you know, cause I was raised on a dairy farm. They sure. didn't get what I do. And they'd say things like hey, brother, yours, what's he do? Just sit around and like, think about being funny. Like they couldn't quite understand that. My brother right. of all things was very defensive. He says, let me tell you something. Work is work. He said, my brother, just cause he doesn't, he's not, uh, you know, uh, driving a tractor today. doesn't mean he's not working. He's in there writing material, booking his travel, uh, figuring out how to promote his business, designing a new postcard, reaching out to clients. So, you know, the, the idea is all of us work and then, you know, obviously that's the other part of the E-Myth. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. You mentioned the mousetrap thing, which is an illustration I use a great deal. Sure. Whenever someone invented that thing and it gets said again and again, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. And I always say that's complete bullshit. Yeah. You, there are better mousetraps that are sitting somewhere on a shelf because they didn't get funded. They didn't get promoted. They didn't get shelf space. They didn't get in front of the customer. There's a lot of stuff besides just building a product or a service. Or, or even more clear, they weren't led by somebody who knew how to get funding or to build a business around it. Most of the business failures, I mean, you can talk about, uh, you know, lack of funding or whatever else, but the reality is it's somebody lacked the skill sets or the drive uh, to, to bring that to market. And you're right. And today it's different though. Today, because the rapid fire um, change, because of new technology, because of AI and artificial intelligence and others that are, are accelerating some of the development, there are forces, you know, while, while those of you who are listening or listening to this podcast right now, there are people sitting in rooms trying to decide and figure out how to do what you do better and different and, and more engaging or something. And we call that disruption. And the ones that really take hold and change an industry are disruptive forces. But, but here's, what's interesting. If you were the one to have those conversations, if you were the one to think of different ways of doing what you do, then we just call that innovation, right? If it's happening to you, it's disruption. But if you spur that, if you drive that, that's innovation. And the one thing that we cannot have today, and it sounds trite to say it, is complacency. You cannot believe that just because you're good at what you do, people that drink their own Kool-Aid, people that think they've created the cure for cancer that tastes like chocolate because they have you know, a, a particular machine part that works well, get over yourself. Uh, I mean, it's important. You better be good at what you do, but it's what you do beyond what your competitors do that give you some sort of predictability of success. Funny you should say that, by the way. Nicole and I are going through uh, old accolades and letters from all the clients that I have forgotten about. That were, uh, this, this stack was in a shelf somewhere. And I said, we might as well find these people and see if they're interested in doing more business with me. Because we used to say in our racket, when you start to believe your own press clippings, 
you know, and too many businesses do that. They, they tell themselves how good they are. They tell themselves how great they are. They think that's their brand. And as I was, uh, as I was taught once, your brand is actually not always what you say it is. It's what the marketplace says about you. Absolutely. Your brand is your reputation and the reputation. We have no control over what other people think uh, or what other people believe, but we have great influence and so the work that I did in the early part of my career on, on marketing and branding, I've shifted towards customer experience. For me, the branches on the same tree. It's about, about competitive advantage, but it's, it's really about you helping to influence how other people see you. And if we fall back on those traditional claims of quality and convenience and caring and trust and people, and you know, what makes you different? Oh, we really, we really care about our clients. Or we really listen. I love this one. They say, we really listen to our clients and we tailor our solutions to make that is, that is so brilliant, David. So oh. many people that I have on this do business better podcast. And I say, what separates you from uh, the place down the street? Well, customer service, everybody believes that they have superior oh my God. service. And as we all know, it's like Lake Wobegong where all the children are above average. There's no exactly way. Right. <laughs> right. Or they say, what makes us different? That, like I said before, what, they th- what makes us different is honestly, we do what we say we're going to do. And, and, they, and it's like a mic drop. And I look at them across the room and I'm going, you actually believe that, don't you? You actually believe that your competitors are consistently underperforming. My God, grow up. Because here's the reality. And, and everybody listening right now, here's, here's a great frame of reference. Unless you have more than 50% market share, either for your company or for a particular product or service that you offer, unless you have more than 50%, most customers don't choose you. Most customers choose your competitors. Do you know why? Because I'm going to tell you why. They choose your competitors because they want to, because they like them, because they're really good. You're not the only one that listens. You're not the only one that's good. Most of your competitors are really good. And the worst part, and I've been saying this for 20 years, the worst part about your competitors is most of them are very, very nice people. Like you would, you would be friends with them if you weren't already, if they weren't a competitor. Stop pretending that the only reason people have done business with you is they've yet to discover you. Get over yourself. Be better. Or as my friend Damien Mason says in his great book, do business better. I appreciate the plug. And you know, that for a plug. And you know, I appreciate the plug. You've got to keep doing business better. And that's what the book is about. That's what this podcast is about. But we're also here to talk to you, Mr. David Averin, about why customers leave. So I'm holding your book in my hot little hands. It's an awesome book. It came out the exact same day as mine. Imagine that. April 2nd, your book and my book both came out. Why do customers leave? So the person listening to this podcast right now, they have customers. They have a business. And as I always say, there's no such thing as self-employed. How could you be self-employed? You can't pay yourself. You've got to get revenue from the marketplace. Somebody else, you bet. Customers. Why do customers leave? The most basic reason why customers leave is because they can. Because we have never been in a time with more choices, more options, and they're good choices. I mean, they're really good choices. The reason customers leave is because there's something in your customer journey that has annoyed them or frustrated them or pissed them off or, uh, or underwhelmed them in some way. It, if it's not about quality anymore, you better be good at what you do. But if you look at your customer's journey at every point of contact from the, from the point where they start researching online to where is their first contact, how they find out about you, can they reach a real person? How easy is it to buy from you? Do they have to jump through hoops? Do they have to go through multiple clicks? Can they buy with one clicker with their face? When they call, can they talk to a real person? There's so many points of contact along that journey that 
that oftentimes we inadvertently frustrate or delay or something. You can have a multi-billion dollar company. You can tell somebody your call is very important to us. And then you put us on hold for 45 minutes. Yeah, how important is that call? That call is so important to you that you have a recording uh, that just keeps telling me how important it is. Uh, yeah. You know, the other thing, a lot of times folks, they don't want to admit that it's their failure, whether it's a small one person business or a hundred people business, whatever. They think it's about price. And how often is it really about price that customers leave? I'm going to say almost. They will always say it is. When, when, here's the problem. The four most dangerous words in business, the four most dangerous words are all things being equal. When everything's equal in the minds of your prospect, then you're right. It is about price. Price for proximity. Whoever's the cheapest, whoever's the closest. Your challenge as a business owner is to never, ever, ever let everything be equal in the minds of your prospect. If they believe that you are essentially the same as, as, your, as your competitors, that is your fault because you have not efficiently differentiated yourself, whether it's in the product or the service or the experience or how easy it is to, to reach you or park at your, or at your location or to buy from you. If it is about price, and I get this dismissive all the time, listen, all they care about is price. You're wrong. You're wrong. They don't only, they do care about price, but it's not all they care about. The only reason when it's all they care about is because they assume you're the same as your competitors. So I was like working with a dental group and, um, and they're all dental surgeons and others. And they said, honestly, they call and they just want to know the price. It's all they care about. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, nope, they don't only care. They only care about it because they think you're the same. You, have, you bring different expertise and, and location and experience and staff and focus. And if you have not effectively communicated that, if you haven't gone online and looked at your Yelp reviews or TripAdvisor or Rotten Tomatoes or Glassdoor or what, whatever, because people will look you up and there are points of frustration that you have not yet corrected or addressed, then yeah, it is about price. But that's your fault. Mr. Averin, I have on my desk a coffee cup that I produced like 18 years ago. And you said the four most dangerous words, all things being equal. Because a long time ago, I heard that. And I'm about not being a commodity. I don't want to be a commodity. I want, to, I want the marketplace to perceive a clear difference for Damian Mason. So I printed up this one. It says, all things being equal. I don't like being equal. There you go. I don't want to be equal. We are brothers from another mother. If everything comes down to you're equal, then it's just going to be who could be cheapest. All right, a couple more thoughts on why customers leave. What can we do to win them back? Because that's what the, the last thing says and how to win them back. What do we do to win them back? Right. The, the challenge of winning them back is, is, is first of all, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. That's why you'll see, like in a strip mall, you'll see in a business that will say under new management. You know what that means? Under new management means we used to suck, <laughs> which means like you may have had a bad experience, but we're different now. Please try us again. That's hard, right? So there's, there's a couple of things. If, if somebody, we've lost somebody, we know that we've underperformed in some way. Um, retention is so much less expensive than, um, than acquiring a new customer, right? So, I mean, we can, we can talk about direct outreach, like just an honest mea culpa. Here's what I did. We screwed yeah. up. Please give yeah. us another chance. Hey, I'm sorry. You know what? You were a great right. customer. By the way, United Airlines, David, had that wonderful commercial back in the late 80s. Exactly right. I remember it. Yep, the, the and, right, and they were holding the paper tickets and he said, we're having a meeting. So we just got fired by our biggest customer. And um, because what we used to be this and how prescient was that in terms of how we do business today. Right. And the end of the commercial was, so where are you going next? And he says, I'm going to go meet with the customer who just fired us. Yep. Right. So even if they don't get it back, the things that you're going to learn, people are, are reluctant to do exit interviews. Somebody leaves you reach out. Why? What do we do? What can we do better? Maybe you won't win them back. Um, you can incentivize a return. 
I mean, it's, it can be expensive, but it's, it's a reality. Give us a, a chance again. Talk about the under new management. Um, we, can, we can watch for a, a change in personnel. Like, honestly, you can, you can monitor them. You can do Google news alerts. The person who fired you when they're gone, try and do. It's hard. The, the easiest thing to do is to identify points of pain along the continuum. In my book, Why Customers Leave, I identify 24 reasons that people leave organizations, whether they're being over-surveyed, whether it's hard to reach a real person, whether they're making promises that they can't keep. The best thing to do is, is get your house in order first and, and, and don't do it again. Right. Um, but the other thing is, is those things that make you preferable, make sure we're communicating that social media is a wonderful opportunity. Tell success stories. One of my favorites, your stalking is creeping us out. I assume we're talking yeah. about the fact that these companies, once you do business with them, they won't get out of your hair. Yeah. Well, and here's, here's, here's the part that's interesting, Damien, is that these are your best prospects, right? The, the person who's the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So of course they jump on that. If you buy something from overstock.com, you're going to get three emails a day for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and, and the, the thinking is so flawed because it was like, these are the most, common people. So let's bombard them with spam. But there, but the answer is there's a balance, right? But there's also a level of personalization. You and I are hit up every day by companies offering to automate your marketing. We can send it 10,000 LinkedIn contacts a day. I don't want to kill 10,000 contacts a day. I don't want to annoy 10,000 contacts a day. We've had a great measure of success in my speaking consulting business because we personalize everything. So anyway, throughout the book, I don't want to go too much detail, um, but, but each one of them, it, it talks about the specific behavior. It gives some marketplace examples. So people who've read it told me that they're like nodding their head through the whole book. But at the end of every chapter, I, I include the same section. Number one is I say, here's why you do it. And part of it is letting them off the hook. I'm not just, I'm not just hammering them for, for 200 something pages, but here's why, why you do it. And I understand because they're trying to uh, achieve a level of predictability and behavior and process and buying behavior and revenue and profit. So I say, here's why you do it. Here's why we hate it right? Here's what that looks like from your customer's perspective. Yeah. But then I offer it not just diagnostic, but also prescriptive. And I say, here's a better approach. And, and oftentimes people really go, God, I wish we probably should have been doing that anyway. But oftentimes in that, that striving for this, this uh, franchise model of predictability of policies and behaviors that we can maybe better predict the outcome. What's lost in that is the humanity. What's lost and not being touchy feely, what's lost is flexibility right. and, and accommodation. And the challenge is oftentimes when we see it, if somebody will say, you know, like a woman goes, and I'll give you a quick scenario. And I know we're short on time, but, but a, a quick scenario, she's in a restaurant, she's with her girlfriend. She says, I'd like to order the chicken Caesar, but can I get shrimp instead of chicken? Cause I see it on the menu. Oh, sorry. We don't do substitutions. You know why? Why don't you do substitutions? You know why? Cause the cook doesn't want to do it. I don't care what the cook wants to do. Right, what's, right, what's, right. What's, what's the alternative? Just not giving her what she wants and she leaves. She's not happy. She complains to others. She goes online and complains to everybody. My God, just give her shrimp, charge her a few extra bucks. But the argument I get, and I still get it every day and I got a great answer, is the slippery slope. Well, if we do it for her, we got to do it for everybody. Right. No, you don't. You're not in third grade. You only have to do it for the people who ask. If right. you can. Because most people won't. But it's so easy to say no. And I guess the reality is, you know, I said that about McDonald's, uh, you know, you can do breakfast all day, but can you do it? What if I want a quarter pounder in the morning? Well, no, we're not set up for that. And I think, well, you, they're back there. I know the quarter pounders are back. Right. There. I got, and I know you have a kitchen and I know you have a griddle and I know, I, and I know you yeah. sell them. You're just not selling them to me because it's not 11 AM. So anyway, I like my customers leave. I like you, David Avern. And the big point here is that I think the takeaway is 
you're, you're making points that could be companies that have 100,000 employees or companies that have an employee of one woman sitting there at her desk cranking out uh, her own business. Absolutely. We all work for other people. And yes, we our do. customers can and will and do leave if we mistreat them. Absolutely. So I know we're out of town. So can I, can I plug the book and where to find me and everything else? I think you should right now. Well, thank you, being the old marketing guy that I am. So the book, Why Customers Leave, and actually my other books as well, everything is on Amazon.com, including Kindle and audio at audible.com, everything in my own voice. So I was fortunate to be able to narrate my own voice. And if you want to learn more about me, you can look me up, see a preview of, uh, of my presentation, everything else at visibilityinternational.com. Or do a search on David Avern. And by the way, you sound really good for just having your face operated on. I'm glad it didn't have any negative effects because obviously a guy like you has to make his living by talking. Well, let's make it clear for those who are listening. I didn't have plastic surgery. I just had my sinuses worked on. So but you can breathe. All right. <laughs> my name is David Avern. This is the Do Business Better podcast. Till next time. Thanks for joining us.